Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and as always, I am blessed to be here to study God's Word with all of you. You know, we only have about a month left in the study of John, and I want to encourage all of you, dive in deep. Don't let off the gas right now, because there is so much coming. John has been filled to this point with spiritual truth, but everything we base our Christian faith on is coming in these next few chapters. And if you recall, we're in John 12 this week. And if you recall, it's when Jesus and his disciples are leaving Ephraim and they're going into Bethany and they're heading to see their friends, their friends that they, uh, he, he's had for a long time and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you recall near the end of John 11, specifically in verse 54, we learn that Jesus's public ministry was nearing its end. They were out to arrest him. They were plotting to kill him. So he and his disciples moved out into the wilderness and they've been living there under the radar. We're not real sure exactly how long. And as John opens up, we find him leaving there and heading to Bethany. So if you haven't already done so, I want you to open your Bibles to John 12 and follow along as I read the first eight verses to get us started. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, although we don't know exactly how long and how much time had passed since they had gotten to Ephraim. We do know that when they got to Bethany, it was six days prior to the Passover. Now, Bethany is a small little town and sits along the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about a mile and a half, say maybe two miles northeast of Jerusalem, and it's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus makes his stop there to see his friends. Now, it's very possible this is the very first time that Jesus would have seen these friends since he had raised Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, from the dead. Can you imagine if that's true, what this emotional, how emotional this reunion would have been? This is the first time they would lay their eyes on the one who raised their brother from the dead. And Jesus tells us that while Jesus is there, they're so excited, they hosted dinner to celebrate and to honor him. Now, as you read through John 12 today, we're going to see that there are four distinct groups of people throughout John. And the first time, the first group we see is found right here in these first few verses, and I call them the friends of Jesus. It's definitely a group I want to be a part of. And, And I thought, I'm interested to know what it looks like to be a true friend of Jesus. And I think we get that right there in verses two and three. It's a very clear picture of what it looks like to be a true friend of Jesus. See, first of all, we see that they were intentionally, they were intentional about spending time and focused time with Jesus. It's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They spent focused time with Jesus. Now, you remember back in uh, John eleven fifty seven, the Pharisees and the chief priests had given orders that if anybody saw Jesus, 
We want to be the first to know. They wanted to arrest him. So this dinner was not only going to be purposeful and focused. Guess what? It probably was dangerous. I never really thought of that before. But not only time were they, not only were they spending time with Jesus, their friend, they were spending time with Jesus, a wanted man. And not only that, they were hosting a dinner in his honor. But see, to these friends, spending time with Jesus was worth the risk. They were willing to take that risk. And I imagine they pulled out all the stops for this dinner. The next thing we learn in verse two is that Martha served. Martha served the meal. Now we don't know exactly who prepared it. We can assume because we've heard about Martha in the past. I assumed that she did a lot for that meal. Others may have assisted her, but I would imagine that every detail of that meal was labored over by Martha because she had the gift of hospitality. She was probably overwhelmed with excitement to prepare this wonderful meal and serve it to the one who had raised her brother from the dead. I bet you she poured her heart into that meal. And I think she did it with excellence and she served Jesus well. You know, I often think that Martha gets a bad rap because she's not always at the feet of Jesus with Mary, not always focused on that. But maybe it's because I kind of feel like Martha. See, I'm the only daughter on our, in our family. And so I'm the one that hosts all the large meals the birthdays, the holidays, Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, whatever it is, I'm preparing for those meals. And I know there are those of you that do the same thing. And if you do, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. You don't prepare for hours, you prepare for days, sometimes even weeks for these meals. And as much as I would like to be seated at that table, relaxed with the family and friends, just sharing wonderful, fun, laughter and conversation, my brain is somewhere else the whole time. I'm thinking, oh, I need to replenish the dressing on the buffet. Or did I take something out of the oven or is something got to go in the oven? It's constantly, I, there's, it's not that I don't want to be right there with everyone, but there are a lot of details that have to be tended to. And I think that by doing that and doing it well, I'm honoring my family and friends because I'm allowing them to relax and enjoy their time together. It blesses me to serve them with excellence. And I see that in Martha. Now, her service in this portion of scripture is way over, overshadowed by Mary's act of worship. But I think Martha's humble service on this occasion was no less commendable. I think it pleased the Lord as well. In fact, I think she was doing it, doing something all of us are commanded to do. Look at 1 Peter 4, 10 on your verse sheet. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's Martha in a nutshell. I believe that in this portion of scripture, Martha was doing that exact thing. She was serving Jesus. And I believe it was motivated by her gratitude to Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. And I think she wanted to honor him the best way she knew how. And that was through her service. And I think she did it with excellence. The next thing we're told in verse two is that Lazarus is reclined at the table with Jesus. Now the men would have been in a separate room, reclined around a table with the food on the table. And as he reclined there by Jesus and along with those disciples, even without speaking, just being reclined at that table, breathing, blinking his eyes, laughing, eating, all of it, 
made him a living witness to the miraculous power of Jesus and how he can restore life to a dead man. Lazarus had been in the grave four days and he's reclined at this table because of Jesus. You know, I think it's interesting to note that apparently there are no recorded words of Lazarus in the New Testament. But I think his life was a living testimony to the power of Jesus. And then we get to verse three and Martha and Lazarus' sister, Mary, enters the room. And she enters that room where the men are reclined around the table and in a very startling and spontaneous display of her love for Jesus, she takes out a pound, which would be like a pint of this extremely expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, John tells us that this perfume was made of pure nard. And nard is made from an herb. It's like the stems and the roots of an herb that's found in northern India. So this tells us imported, expensive. It would have cost a lot to have this. In fact, it would come, it would be sealed in an alabaster box or a flask, sealed tightly, and they would only take that seal off when it was going to be used for a very important occasion. It would have cost roughly a year's wages for a common, wa- a common laborer. In fact, for Mary, it very possibly could have been her entire life savings would have taken to buy this pint of perfume. And then she does something even more shocking than taking expensive oil and pouring it on Jesus' feet. She does something that no Jewish woman would have ever done in public because it was considered indecent. It was the ultimate no-no. She takes her hair down in public and she wipes, the hair, wipes her hair on Jesus' feet. You see, everything that Mary did as she worshipped at Jesus' feet, it went against what the world told her. It went against what the world said was what she should do. I don't think she was concerned with what the world told her to do. I don't think she had one thought about the world at that moment, only her desire to honor Jesus with her act of lavish worship. And for her, I can imagine while she was at his feet, wiping her hair on his feet with that oil, she felt like they were the only two in the room and time stood still for her. It was just her and Jesus and her devotion to him with her lavish and humble act of worship. You know, there are mixed thoughts about whether she knew what was in Jesus's near future. Some say she unknowingly anointed Jesus's body before he was crucified. There are others that say that Mary spent so much time at the feet of Jesus, she may have had an understanding, even a little bit of understanding what was coming for him in his near future. But I do know this. Look at Mark 16, 1 on your verse sheet. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, anoint Jesus's body. Apparently, Mary of Bethany, who was also very, very close to Jesus, was not among those who went to the tomb to prepare Jesus's body. Maybe, in a sense, Mary was showing her devotion to Jesus before He was crucified before it was too late. You know, as Warren Wearsby puts it like this, maybe Mary was giving Jesus flowers while he was still alive and not taking him to the funeral. It's hard to say. I don't know that for sure, whether she knew or didn't, but we do know this. Her act of worship was public. It was spontaneous. It was lavish. 
It was deeply personal. And it tells us it was a sweet aroma to Jesus. It pleased him. And not only that, did you see what it said? It said it stayed with her. When she left the feet of Jesus, that aroma filled the room. It stayed with her. It was in her hair. It was all over her. It may have stayed with her, but it did not, did not please some in the room. It was not well received by Judas Iscariot and the rest of the disciples, apparently. But it was commended and it was defended by Jesus. And that's all I think that mattered to Mary. You know, these three dear friends of Jesus, they knew how to please Jesus. And it was motivated because of their gratitude. And they set out to do it with excellence. And I think they did. Something tells me, though, that even if Jesus hadn't performed a huge miracle for them or hadn't done something for them, I think they still would have served, witnessed, and worshipped just because of who he is to them. Can the same be said about you? What motivates your service? What motivates you to worship? Do your words and your actions bear witness to who Jesus is? Or do you only worship based on what he's done for you? You know, I had this new puppy. I got her a year ago. Um, some call her a COVID puppy. We call her Gracie. Gracie is 51 pounds of fluffy goodness. This is Gracie celebrating uh, New Year's Eve with me. And uh, she just lives her life to please me most of the time. Most of the time, that's all she really cares about is making sure I'm happy. But one thing I've trained her to do is she'll come in and she'll sit down and she'll put up her paw and give me a high five. And I give her, she does it at my desk mostly. And she'll, she knows that on my desk is a sealed jar of her absolute favorite treats, pretzels. Here's another fact about Gracie. She would do anything for a pretzel, anything. So they have to be tightly sealed up high. And she comes in, she'll sit down, she'll give me a high five and I give her a pretzel and she moves on. But if I go to Gracie and I say, praise God, she'll jump up on her hind feet and she puts her paws in the air and then she waits for a pretzel because she's praised on command. You know, after a while, I thought, I need, to be pre I need to be teaching her to do some fun things without getting a pretzel. So I've been working on that, and I can report that after a, a few weeks of this, no pretzel, Gracie is not so receptive of praising without pretzels. She isn't forthcoming quite as often. You know, I, I'm pretty sure you know where I'm going with this. See, true friends of Jesus, they're going to praise when they don't get their pretzel. Not only that, they're going to serve him. They're going to bear witness to who he is. They're, even, they're going to do it even when they're not getting what they want or what they're praying for. I can tell you from experience, this is not easy. In fact, it's very difficult, but it is always possible, always possible when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Your life becomes a sweet aroma to Jesus when it is a beautiful balance of service, witness, and worship. And all of that motivated not just by what he's done for you, but it's motivated by who he is. Let that motivate all three of those things for you. I want to pick up in verse 9. I'm going to read the next 11 verses. Starting at nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in him. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when they, he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus leaves this quiet little town where he's had this wonderful dinner with his friends and he heads towards uh, Jerusalem and there's a crowd there. They'd heard about Lazarus. Some may have actually witnessed that miracle. And now they want to see who is it that did it? Who is this guy that performed this miracle? I think there were some of those crowd, that, that large crowd that were very, very curious. But I think there were also some that were not necessarily serious about knowing Jesus there were those in that large crowd who would have been there just for the hype. They wanted to see a show maybe, hopefully see another miracle if they were there, just at the right time. You see in these first three verses, we also see that Lazarus, we, remember I said his life bore witness to Jesus's power? He'd become a threat to the Jewish leaders. So much so that they wanted to uh, kill him, just like they wanted to kill Jesus. They were plotting to kill Lazarus. I guess you could say they wanted to bury the evidence. I mean, Lazarus was the evidence of Jesus's power and they wanted him gone, just like they wanted Jesus gone. But Jesus leaves that quiet little town in Bethany and he draws near to Jerusalem and he climbs up onto a small donkey and he begins to ride. I'm sure that caught the attention of this loud and noisy crowd that had gathered at the Passover celebration, and we know that it did. You know, John doesn't always include a lot of uh, details about events that happen in Jesus's ministry, but same goes here. He includes two main things in this triumphal entry, and they're two details that actually point to prophecy. For instance, John includes the detail that, John, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a small donkey. That's recorded in Zechariah 9.9. And then he includes the words that the crowd was yelling, which was also to fulfill prophecy. And that's found in Psalm 118. Look at those on your verse sheet. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That is a reference to the nation of Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Psalm 118, 25 and 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That is an exact translation of the word Hosanna. It says, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless you from the house of the Lord. And Jesus is riding on this donkey and it's grabbed the attention of this crowd. They're gathered in Jerusalem for this Passover. And, and, and many even think that this crowd would have been over a million people. I can't even imagine this. But no matter how big it was, it had to be loud. It had to be chaotic. And they're waving palm branches and they're shouting and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, I, I kind of imagined it like an old video I saw of an Elvis Presley concert. 
I kind of date myself when I tell you this, but I saw this video and Elvis in his white jumpsuit is about to walk out on the stage and they show the audience and those people have lost their minds. They are jumping up and down, screaming at the top of their lungs. The, the girls are literally weeping. They're just crying. And some of them become so overwhelmed with emotion and swept up into the, the emotion of this crowd that they just pass out. I mean, they just fall out on the ground. And I was shocked by that. See, the enthusiasm of this misguided crowd in Jerusalem, it's emotion that's soon going to fade away when Jesus goes away. Some in that crowd were cheering for Jesus. They were saying, Hosanna. They were the same ones that were going to say, crucify him. And then there were those in that crowd that, that were saying, blessed is the Lord, the King of Israel. They're the same ones that would be saying, free Barabbas. And then they turn their back on Jesus and allow him to be sentenced to death on a cross. Now, in the crowd's defense, Jesus does record that even friends of Jesus specifically his disciples, they didn't fully understand, apparently. They didn't understand everything Jesus said. They didn't understand what was happening around them. And, and I think they probably were swept up in this crowd a little bit too, but there's a difference here. Aside from Judas, who was going to betray Jesus later that week, the disciples, even though they didn't completely understand everything about Jesus, they remained committed to Jesus. They were loyal to him. And because of that, John tells us they got to see Jesus glorified. Even the friends of Jesus, his disciples, they became part of a crowd. But they didn't allow themselves to become ruled by the emotions that were in that crowd, to be swept up into the enthusiasm of that crowd. They remained committed to Jesus and they saw him glorified. They got to see him walk and talk with them after he rose from the dead. They witnessed him ascending into heaven. They had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. You know, as women, it is so easy, so easy to get caught up in the emotion of a crowd because emotions can go either way. They can be high highs and low lows and everything in between. We can't, because of that, depend on our emotions to guide us, especially when it comes to following Jesus. Because... When we're led by our emotions, our commitment to Jesus is going to fade. It's going to fade and, and emotions are exhausting. You're going to be tired of dealing with it. Please be guided by the Holy Spirit and then prayerfully study God's word. And you're going to see Jesus glorified in all your circumstances. You're going to see him glorified in the high highs and the low lows and everything in between, the big and the small. I want you to follow along. I'm going to pick up in verse 20, and we're going to read to verse 36. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were Greeks. So they ca these came to Philip, who were from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is, the t- now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was gonna die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that, that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. You know, John records that there were also Greeks in that crowd. They had come to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and they were seeking Jesus. They wanted time with Jesus. It's almost if in a small way, John was wanting to remind us of the truth that Jesus came to save the whole world, not just the Jew, but the Gentile as well. It was one of John's major themes throughout his gospel. I think you've seen it. Look at John 1, 29 in your verse sheet. So this is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the whole world. And John three sixteen, we all know this one so well. For God so loved the world, the whole world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's just a couple. We could go on and on with those. They're all over, scattered throughout John. Now, according to the original text, these texts, these Greeks mentioned by John would have been described more as truth seekers. They weren't really just curious visitors who happened to pop into it, to Jerusalem on Passover. At Passover, they were very likely there to seek time with Jesus. And they very likely had abandoned their pagan religions and maybe were turning to the one true God and they wanted to know more about Jesus. So they traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover and it kind of foreshadows Gentiles who are eventually gonna be worshiping Jesus as their savior. You see, the Jews only wanted to see more miracles. They kept saying, show us more signs. They kept going after Jesus, show us more of what you can do. But the Greeks, they sought more time with Jesus, the source of his miracles. They wanted to know more about the source of the miracles. And Philip and Andrew, they took them to Jesus. Now, John doesn't record whether Jesus actually had a conversation with them. We don't know. But but what he does say at that time is a response filled with spiritual truth that applies to both the Jew and the Gentile. And it begins with, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you remember up to this point, Jesus has always said, my hour has not yet come. Now it has changed. He's saying, my hour, my time has come. See, what he's saying is my death is close. And he's saying that it's through his death that he is going to be glorified. Then Jesus goes on to use this illustration of a seed. And he's going to drive home a spiritual truth here. It's a truth that no glory comes without suffering and that no fruitful life, it comes without dying to yourself. See, he takes, he says, a seed in itself, it's weak, it's useless. It really has no purpose at that point. But when it's buried, it dies. And that's when it gets to fulfill its ultimate purpose. See, as followers of Christ, we have to undergo undergo a spiritual death to self as well. And then we begin to live out our ultimate purpose as well. 
is we serve Christ. That's how we become fruitful. And then verses 25 and 26, they tell us that when we do that, we are blessed, that God blesses us. It says first, it says we are promised the presence of Jesus. That's here on earth and that is when we're in eternity. And then it goes on to say, we'll be honored by God. Honored by God? I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, if I stand here and try to think of the most um, amazing honor I could receive here on earth, whatever that is, if I multiplied that times a gazillion, times infinity, I would be this close to what it would be like to be honored by God. What does that feel like? I, I, I want to do that. All human honor pales in comparison to the eternal honor God is going to give to all of us who love and serve his son that he loves so much. Look at John 17, 24 in your verse sheet. This is from the high priestly prayer that, uh, John, uh, that Jesus prays. And I, I guess I've never noticed this before, but look at this. It says, Father, I declare that they also, talking about us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. How have I ever missed that? I don't get it. I mean, Jesus is praying. We pray all the time, Jesus be with us, be with us. Jesus is praying that we would be with him. His desire is that we be with him and we would get to see his glory. It amazes me every time I read that verse. You know, in verse 27, then we see Jesus actually in turmoil. He's going, do I face the immense suffering and this humiliating death? Or do I beg my father to take it away from me? Do I beg him to save me? I know exactly what I would have done. But Jesus, in complete submission, he says, this is my purpose so, Father, glorify your name. And what does he get? An immediate response from heaven, immediate response from his heavenly Father. And he's assured that I've glorified my name in the past and I'm going to glorify it in your future. You can trust me on this. And I know that had to comfort Jesus. But, you know, there were those in that crowd that said, oh, it thundered. Really? There were others in there that heard words, but they misunderstood the, who was speaking. And they said, oh, an angel has spoken to him. Now, trust me, I, we, we could have spent an entire week on these three verses or four verses. We could spend that whole week discussing the topic of hearing God's voice and how when you have a hardened heart, you're not able to hear his voice. And that if you're spiritually immature, you might misunderstand who's speaking or what he's speaking. But remember, we're covering 50 verses today and we're gonna stop that conversation right there. I'm gonna let you dive into that on your own time. And Jesus continues packing in the truth as he begins to allude to his death on the cross and he follows it with a warning to walk in the, in the light while you still have it. And then he goes on to say, and while you have it, believe in it, believe in it and you'll become children of the light, sons and daughters of the light. You know, I heard it described like this. So light's soon going to be gone. So while you still have it, light your candle on the original flame. And then you're going to be able to light up the rest of the world, all the darkness in the world, even when that original flame has been withdrawn. See, as followers of Christ, 
you and I, we have already lit our candle on the original flame. And now it's our responsibility to take that light out into the world. Don't hide it under a bushel, like we sing in that little children's song. Let the whole world see it. Let it drive out darkness. Serious seekers of Jesus don't only seek Jesus for more miracles. They don't only seek him to get more of what they can get from him. Rather, they seek to know him and understand who he is. That's why they seek him. And I think that's what the Greeks were doing. They sought him that day at the temple because they wanted to know who had performed those miracles. But he speaks to us today as well. We can hear his voice. When we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and we study his word, we're not gonna hear loud thunder and we're not gonna misunderstand what we're hearing and who's speaking to us. We're gonna hear words of assurance and guidance. And it's coming back to us through his holy scriptures. That's how he speaks to us. That's how we hear his voice. Now follow along. I'm gonna read verses 37 to 43. Though he had done so many signs before, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they may not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I know this section in the, in the scriptures is entitled the unbelief of the people. I wanna call these people the stubborn unbelievers because I think verse 37 tells us that, that even after Jesus had done sign after sign after sign for them, they continued in their unbelief. They had continued to scoff at his claims just like they had done from the very beginning of his ministry. But we can rest assured that Jesus even has authority over their unbelief. And their unbelief was only there to fulfill prophecy. Specifically, prophecy found in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. I've put those on your verse sheet as a reference and but for a second time, we're not going to read them. And John explains that the Jews persistently, their persistent unbelief is not only took place to fulfill prophecy. He goes on to say that eventually it led to their spiritual blindness. God hardened their hearts and blinded them to his truths. That's hard to hear. I mean, I, I honestly, I sometimes I think that sounds harsh. How can God love someone and do that? But we have to remember this, God didn't harden the hearts of those that, the people that were consistently and constantly seeking him. They were seeking to live pure lives, seeking to know more about him, seeking to live a life that honored him. That's not who he hardened. He hardened the hearts and he blinded those who had seen sign after sign after sign. And they continued to make a personal choice to reject his truths. Not just once, but over and over again. That's whose hearts he had hardened. And in verse 42 and 43, John goes on to record that although many had rejected Jesus, there were those who did believe in him, but they were too afraid to confess it in public. 
because they were, had fears of being thrown out of the synagogue and shamed because of it. See, these people feared and praised the opinion of man more than they feared and praised God. Even those that escaped God's divine blindness, they insisted on being closet Christians. I don't think it's because they feared for their lives, though. I think it's because they feared for their status in life. We have the same dilemma every day. It's a constant struggle for all of us. Do we seek to bring glory to, to our great name? Or do we seek to bring glory to God and his great name? Do we honor God or do we honor God or, or man? Paul addressed this in his letter to the Colossians. Look at Colossians uh, 3 on your verse sheet. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, as followers of Christ, be more concerned about God's approval than the approval of man. We may not have to fear losing our lives when we confess our faith in Jesus, but I do think we sometimes fear losing our status in life when we confess to the world that we believe in Jesus. I want to finish up. I'm going to read the last few verses. I'm going to start at verse 44 and go to the end. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. And that word, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You know, it's like, I don't know if you remember when you were in high school or college, I almost feel like these last few verses of John are the cleft notes of the Gospel of John. I'm quite familiar with cleft notes. It's about the only way I could read anything in literature when I was in college and high school. But I think these are his cleft notes right here. He says, to believe in Jesus is to believe in God the Father. He's saying Jesus came to bring light to a dark world. Jesus came to save, not to judge. He says rejection of Jesus ultimately leads to God's eternal judgment. And the words of Jesus are the words of God the Father. That's John in a nutshell. You know, it's obviously important to John that those that read his gospel would be completely understanding of who Jesus is and place their trust in him. But I think even as much as that, he wanted them to fall deeply in love with Jesus. I believe he had, and I believe he wanted his readers to do the same. You know, my son Casey works for an organization. It's called Bridges. It's a part of Crew. It's the part that works with the international students. And a couple years ago, he became fast friends with a Muslim friend of his from um, the Middle East. He was studying at the college where Casey was working. They bonded over long, in-depth debates over the Quran and the Bible. And this went on for weeks and weeks and months. And then one day, his friend came to him and said, I only want to study the Bible. So they did. And they had long, in-depth discussions about the Bible and went into all the Old Testament scriptures and how they led to the New Testament. And then COVID hit. And his friend had to return to the Middle East, um, to his home, 
and had to leave his Bible behind. But they came up with a plan of how they could still read scripture safely and securely. And they also came up with a vocabulary that would allow them to discuss it when they get on their, whatever the Zoom or whatever it was they were uh, using to communicate. And so they decided before this young man left that they would be studying John because Casey loves John. It's one of his favorite books of the Bible. So they decided they'd read a couple chapters at a time and then get together to discuss it over the airways. So the first time they got together to discuss the first few chapters, before Casey could even say, well, how do you like it? His friend jumped in and said, Casey, I love this book. And I've fallen in love with the main character. Please, please tell me he's going to be in every book we read from here on out. And Casey just said, oh, yeah. He's going to be in all the books we read from here out. He's the main character in all of them. You know, I think we can safely say, mission accomplished, John. You did it. He did exactly what he set out to do so many years ago, and his faithfulness to reveal Jesus' truths throughout his gospel has led so many to just fall deeply in love with his main character, Jesus. I pray that the study of John is only causing you to fall deeply in love with Jesus as well. It may be the very first time for you. And for some of you, I hope that you're falling in love with him all over again. Please pray with me. Father, your word is um, it's just water to our souls. Father, um, I pray that you would always... Remind us to return to your word so you can speak to us, so we can hear your voice, so we can apply all of those to our lives and become different people, Father. People that love to worship you, love to serve you, and that our lives bear witness to you, Father. Father, pray that as we go into these last few weeks of our study, that you would just reveal truth after truth to us that just nourishes our soul and just builds us up and changes who we are. Father, we love you, we love your word, and it's in your precious son's name we pray, amen.